Chapter 22 of A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith. Chapter 22. Mr. Headley Simmons, like many other men who have been accustomed to roughing it in the outlands of the earth, taking their rest when they might, and going without it when necessary, was not a very early riser. Saunders brought him a cup of coffee and his letters at eight, and at half-past he had his bath and got shaved, after which he sat down to a leisurely breakfast. But this particular morning something seemed to take him back to the old conditions. He was brought awake at five o'clock. He saw some letters which had come in by the evening's post, and which he had not noticed when he came to bed, lying on the writing-table in the middle of his room. He got out of bed and took them back to read. Those which were obviously business communications he tossed aside, for truth to tell, after his experiences of the night before, he was in little humor for that sort of thing. Then, on a square-crusted envelope, he saw the crest and monogram of Miss Rowell Grover. This he opened and found an at-home card for four o'clock that afternoon. He ran through the rest of the envelopes without finding anything that his secretary could not attend to. Then he took up the card again and began one of those soliloquies which men who have spent many of their days in the solitude of the wilderness are wont to indulge in. Just fits in, he said to himself. Couldn't have been more convenient. Of course, her highness will have had a card. She is the dear little woman's greatest social attraction, or, at any rate, the most interesting, doubly interesting for me, since she does me the honor of wishing to marry me. And if that infernal machine of Ramal's is to be relied upon, as I suppose it is, she has done me the still greater honor of falling in love with me. She, Kara Natif, the unapproachable, who has perhaps had more coronets laid at her feet than any other woman in Europe. Well, I suppose this is a great compliment, and my masculine vanity ought to feel duly flattered. Ah, if it wasn't for Grace. Of course she will be there, too. Curse that fellow decree. Why did he meet Earth before I did? to say nothing of getting adopted by Sir Godfrey, the man who ought to have died out there in Never Never. I wonder if he ever told Harold about that little trip of ours, and if he remembers the other affair with his real father. If that could be proved, a British jury might take a rather ugly view of it, to say nothing of Godfrey Enstone's half-share of the Lone Hill Mines, which, of course, Master Harold would come into as his only legal heir. That would be a matter of some eight or ten millions hard cash, and even I might find a little difficulty in realizing to that extent under compulsion. However, there is not much fear of that, unless Jenner Hawking really is alive, or has somehow come to life again after getting frozen to death and duly cremated. Suppose he learns the whole story by means of the, that diabolical contrivance at the Institute. Still, if he made himself unpleasant, there would always be the possibility of sending him back to prison, and I don't suppose he would care to risk that. 
Now I shall be safe enough there, and these people can be of the greatest possible use to me in more ways than one. By the way, I wonder what the beautiful Miss Enstone and Master Harold would say if they knew that Jenner Hawking, convict and poisoner, had come to life and was running this wonderful institute, as I dare say he is with our friend Ramal for a figurehead. Perhaps he might be persuaded to abolish his niece's husband in some decently unobtrusive way. That, at least, would leave the coast clear in a legal sense. When I come to a thorough understanding with a resuscitated convict, perhaps that may be, be worth thinking about. It would do away with a good many unpleasant contingencies. I do hope Her Highness will have sufficiently recovered to be there this afternoon. If she is, it ought to be quite an interesting meeting. And now I think as it's a fine morning, a tub and a turn on Guerrero in the park won't be a bad thing. Mr. Saunders was not altogether pleased at being roused at such an unseemly hour, but he knew his master too well not to make his appearance with his usual serene composure. A telephone message was sent to the muse, and by the time Mr. Headley Simmons's toilet was completed and he had taken his early coffee, his horse was standing before the entrance in charge of a groom. Guerrero was a splendid black stallion, descended as to three parts of his ancestry from the old Andalusian stock imported into Central and Western South America by the old conquerors of Peru. Like nearly all South American horses, he was a pacer. That is to say, he did not trot, but swung along at a fast, easy sort of run, which will wear down the best trotting horse in an hour or two. He was his owner's favorite mount when he wanted the exhilaration of rapid movement with perfect ease in the saddle, for the rider of a pacer does not rise in the stirrups. He sits down along straight-legged and just accommodates the swing of his body to that of the horse. These may appear to be somewhat trivial details, and yet if Mr. Headley Siemens had known the ultimate consequences of his waking so early and taking a fancy for a spin on Guerrero in the park that particular morning he would rather have put a bullet through the head of his favorite horse than have risked them so fatally are the smallest and the greatest concerns of human life mixed up together in the tangled web of destiny. It so happened that Harold and Grace were also taking an early spin that morning and just as they turned in through Alexandra Gate, they saw Guerrero come swinging along the row at about eight miles an hour, with his rider sitting erect and motionless in the saddle. A light gray coat buttoned only at the neck was lying back over the saddle, fluttering in the air made by the horse's speed. What a lovely horse! exclaimed Grace. A pacer, too. You don't often see them in the park. And what a speed! It must be beautifully bred and trained, and why, Harold! As Guerrero's rider turned round and raised his soft, broad-brimmed felt hat, that's his majesty Headley Simmons. How beautifully he rides! Damn him! I know him now. I knew I had seen him before. Harold, what on earth is the matter with you? You don't often forget your manners like that. But, she went on anxiously, 
You have gone quite pale, and your face looks just as it did when you were giving evidence against my, I mean, Dr. Hawking. What is it? Won't you tell me, dear? He had returned Simmons' salute mechanically, and as the black horse swung around the bend, he followed it with his eyes as though he had not heard her question. The sight of Guerrero and his rider had suddenly taken his thoughts back through nearly fifteen years to a little straggling collection of weatherboard-walled tin-roof shanties, which made up the beginning of what was now a city far away in Arizona. He saw himself, a lad of fourteen, riding up the wide, ragged street, fringed with its broken plank sidewalks, beside the man who lay in the family vault at Enstone done to death by the infernal arts of Jenner Hawking. A hundred yards away, a man was riding toward them on a black mustang, a pacer. A poncho or Spanish cloak hung from his shoulders, and a wide-brimmed hat was tilted slightly back from his forehead. He saw Godfrey Enstone's hand go back to his pistol pocket and heard him say in a voice that was hard and sharp in sudden anger, Hal, that's Collier Banfield, the man who had your father killed and left me to die and never, never. Get out of the way, quick. There'll be shooting in a moment. At the same instant, the other man's hand went back to his hip. The two pistols cracked almost simultaneously, but Godfrey Enstone's was just a little quicker. A bullet sank past his ear. Then he saw the other man sway in the saddle and roll off. He remembered that when the wound was dressed, it was a rather peculiar one. The bullet had broken the collarbone, passed through the neck, almost miraculously clearing the great blood vessels, and had run down and lodged itself deep into the muscle of the back, whence it was afterwards extracted. Certainly the wound would leave a mark, which would not possibly be mistaken as long as Collier Banfield lived. It all passed in one of those swift flashes of memory which take no account of time or distance. In fact, so brief was it that Grace hardly noticed more than a little hesitation in his reply. I beg your pardon, dear, a thousand times, he said, still looking after the flying shape of Guerrero at his rider. But I am sure you will forgive me when I tell you that I was perfectly right when I said to you the other day that I was certain I had seen Hedley Simmons somewhere before. I am certain of it now, and what's more, I know who he really is. Who he really is, Harold, exclaimed Grace, looking sharply at him. Why, what on earth do you mean? Do you mean that he is not really what he represents himself to be? They turned their horses in the direction of Hyde Park Corner, and he began his explanation, speaking quietly but with a thrill of angry emotion running through his tone. No, Grace, he is not what he pretends to be. To put it quite shortly, Hadley Simmons of today, millionaire mine king, railway king, student, and all the rest of it, is really Collier Benfield of ten or fifteen years ago, gambler, card sharper, thief, assassin, and any other old thing that is bad. Do you remember Sir Godfrey telling the story of the narrow shave he had in Australia when the man he thought was his friend and comrade to the death drank his water, stole his gold dust, took his papers, and left him to die in the wilderness of hunger and thirst? 
That man was Collier Benfield, alias Hadley Siemens. You know that on what we call the anniversary, Sir Godfrey and I always put on black ties and that I do so still? Well, that is the day that my father, I mean, that my real one, was knifed in a gambling hell in Yokohama, taken unaware and killed in cold blood by a crossbred English Chinaman who was hung a few years after for another murder, or rather half a dozen. He confessed the night before he died that Banfield was the real owner of the place and that he was bribed to pick a quarrel with him and knife him because my father had found out a few rather ugly truths about the establishment and had threatened to have it closed down by the authorities. So now you see, dear, that I have a double grudge against our millionaire friend. How awful, Harold, said Grace almost in a whisper. But how is it that you recognize him, I mean, of course, supposing that you are right, only this morning when you have seen him scores of times before? Because, dear, replied Harold, it is the first time since that shooting match in Arizona. Oh, I forgot. I didn't tell you about that, but that will do later on. I mean that this is the first time I have seen him riding a pacer since our last meeting in Arizona, when Sir Godfrey was a bit too quick for him and got his bullet in first. That supplied the missing link of memory. Ah, look, there he comes again. You can't mistake a man that rides like that, and that light coat flying behind him reminded me of the Mexican poncho that he was wearing. I'd lay a thousand pounds to a penny that if I could see that man's shoulder, I'd find that bullet wound. And suppose you are really right, she said in a low tone as Hedley Simmons, who had already completed the circuit, swung past them again with his hand on the brim of his hat. Well, he said slowly, if we were away west or east or south, I'd shoot him like the dog that he is. But if I give him what he deserves here, I'm afraid the law will proceed to make you a widow, dear, and that in a most unpleasant fashion. That's the worst thing about these civilized countries. I couldn't bring any crime legally home to him, at least unless something like a miracle happened. But still, I can find some way of proving that I am right, and there will be some satisfaction in letting the world know that Hadley Simmons, the Gold King, as they call him, is identical to Collier Banfield, swindler, card sharper, and assassin hirer. And when I have done that, we will see what he does. By the way, are you going to Miss Raul Grover's this afternoon? Yes, I certainly intended to do so, she replied. But he will be sure to be there, too, and after what you have told me, it would be rather uncomfortable, to say the least of it, and perhaps you wouldn't like me. Quite the reverse, my dear, he interrupted. I wouldn't have told any other woman so, but you have always been such a good and perfectly reliable chum that I know you will help me, and the best way you can do that is to meet him and treat him exactly as though I haven't said a word to you. That's what I am going to do, because, of course, the only way to get anywhere with him is not to let him suspect anything. Mr. Headley Siemens blissfully unconscious of the many possibilities of his morning ride in the park, went to Miss Raoul Grover's at home in a state of somewhat piquant uncertainty as to whether he would meet the princess or not, and if so, 
whether she would retain any definite memory of the experiment which he was now beginning to feel rather glad she had not been able to go through with. He was not disappointed in either respect. Karin Natif was one of the first to greet him after he had paid his respects to his hostess, and there was no mistaking the meaning with which she said as they shook hands, I am delighted to meet such a very close acquaintance again so soon. She spoke in a very low but perfectly distinct tone, and there was a point-blank look of challenge in her wonderful eyes as they met his, which left no possibility of doubt as to her perfect comprehension of the situation. For his part, the millionaire hardly knew for the moment whether to be pleased or the reverse. On the one hand, it was distinctly comforting to his masculine vanity to find himself on such uniquely intimate terms with one of the most beautiful and brilliant women in Europe. On the other hand, it was quite possible for a man of his complicated temperament and vast responsibilities not to feel somewhat anxious as to the extent and nature of her almost miraculously acquired knowledge. He had passed the end stones a few moments before, with the usual bow and the stereotyped smile proper to such social functions. He had never seen Grace looking more lovely or quite so distantly desirable. Although she gave no apparent signs of possessing the terrible knowledge which Harold had given her that morning in the park, his acute and highly trained perceptions nevertheless detected that something must have happened to alter her mental attitude toward him since their last meeting. The lovely magnetic eyes looked into his with a glance of acute inquiry and a glint of what he took to be antagonism, which he had never seen in them before. Of course, he knew of no reason for it, though if he could now have had a few moments' seance with her at the other end of the marvelous instrument in the octagonal room of, at the Institute, he would have had very good reason to understand the meaning of that altered glance. As it was, he was only able to compare it to with the equally and yet differently changed expression in the violet-blue eyes of Karin Natif, not altogether to the advantage of the latter. Grace and Lady Georgina Pontifex passed again a moment after the princess had uttered her significant greeting. How very lovely the beautiful Miss Enstone is looking this afternoon, she said, almost in a whisper. Really, one cannot wonder that so many of the men in town, even lions of society, would be so very glad, and I dare say, give so much to exchange personalities with her husband. There was no mistaking either the words or the eloquent glance which accompanied them. He saw instantly that his secret was known to her that she knew that he loved grace and stone with a passion that was as strong as it was unholy he was not slow to recognize the power which the, this knowledge gave her and it was not very long before she made the fact if possible even plainer to him Miss Raoul Grover's house was one of those old made-of-ale mansions which are all too quickly disappearing before the encroachment of shops and flats. The spacious Georgian drawing-room ran from front to back of the house and opened 
by wide glass doors on the little flight of broad marble steps leading into a big tree-shaded garden whose apparent extent had been doubled by the genius of Sir Joseph Paxton, and so an at-home and fine weather also pleasantly partook of the nature of, part of a garden party. It so happened, whether by design or accident, that about an hour later Mr. Headley Samons found himself once more tete-a-tete with Karnatif in a little secluded arbor to which one of the servants had brought them tea and cakes. And now, princess, he began abruptly when he felt that they were alone, since we know each other so well, and I can see quite plainly that you know at least one of my secrets, and that you know at least one of mine, she said with a glint in her eyes and a snap in her voice. Well, I suppose you are going to ask me, as our American friends would say, what I am going to do about it. Exactly. Then it should not take us very long to understand each other, she said softly in German for greater protection against possible eavesdroppers. But this is hardly the place for such confidences, is it? I'm afraid not, he replied in the same language. A certain room in the Institute would be more suitable, would it not? As though the very mention of the name had summoned him, Ram Dass appeared at that instant at the door of the summer-house, salaamed and presented a little sealed envelope. Ah, said Headley Siemens as he picked it up from the table, perhaps this is at once an answer and a suggestion. End of chapter 22